This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy The Politics of Everything. Welcome to The Politics of Everything. This is episode 15. Today I have Kate Toon with us discussing the politics of SEO or search engine optimization, a word most of us business people need to understand if we want to be found. Kate is an exceptionally talented copywriter and a solopreneur who has learnt the art of the digital. She helps businesses and brands get ranked on page one in the magical digital landscape. And her website, Kate Toon Copywriter, showcases her personality and professional offerings, including copy and script writing, workshops, and her first copywriting conference, which she ran earlier this year. Kate also has a new book, Confessions of a Misfit Entrepreneur, and we can't wait to pick her brains on the SEO game and more. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Look, I'd love to just find out really what is SEO about? Well, I think it's a word that often makes business people shudder because I think there's a lot of misinformation about how complex it is, whether it's some kind of dark art where you get some magic juju that you sprinkle over your website and miraculously it ranks. But in really simple terms, all it is about is making your website Google friendly. So if you sell piglet jumpers and you want to be at the top of the rankings when someone types in the words piglet jumpers, you've checked off all the things that Google wants you to, to ensure that your site comes up at the top of the rankings. And I guess my question to you is, as a copywriter, do you think great copy and SEO can be best friends? Because in my experience, I've had over the years quite a number of websites, 10 years of being in my own practice, people saying to me, oh, look, it's a great website, but it's not SEO friendly enough. It's not mobile optimized enough. We're going to have to change all the copy. And I'm like, can we not have repetitive keywords? Because as a writer, I find it a little bit boring. Yeah. What's your kind of tip on that? Well, it's it's a big, big old question, but I'll break it down into a couple of different parts. The first thing is, you know, no amount of of good copy on your website will help you overcome a technically unsound site. So if your site is slow, if it's not responsive, if it's buggy and Google can't crawl it well, well, then you are kind of doomed from an SEO point of view because you can write copy till you're blue in the face, but Google can't get to it, can't it can't crawl it and therefore it can't index it. So technical SEO is really, really important. But when it comes to copywriting and writing copy for your site, look, I still do believe it's important to write around topics and include words which you think people are going to type into Google to find your content. But there's no real, there never really was such a thing as keyword density and having the copy, the keyword in your copy a certain number of times. Google wants us to write naturally. It wants us to write engaging copy that our readers are going to enjoy. Um, So you would never sacrifice great copy for SEO. You always think humans first and Google second. But I think the only thing I would caveat I would say there is it's important to have a focus for the page. If you're writing about blue widgets, of course, you're going to use the word blue widget, but just don't overdo it. Don't stuff it in. 
Okay, so it's not about repetition necessarily. No, and I mean, I think with the, there's a Google algorithm update called Hummingbird, which was all about looking at um, user intent and getting better at understanding synonyms. So, you know, if you've used the word blue widget several times and it's starting to sound a bit samey, well, then think of other words that are similar to blue widget, but not quite the same. You know, one page can rank for hundreds and hundreds of different keywords. So make your writing rich, get out your thesaurus and find out different ways of expressing the same thing. I love that. So going back into your your own career, what were some of the early lessons you learned about, I guess, the business world and ultimately what success might look like for you? Well, I think, you know, early on, we're all just scrambling around trying to make some money. And I I didn't have any particularly elevated goals and and a big why. You know, I didn't want to change the world. I just wanted to make enough money to pay my mortgage. So I think, you know, the the lessons I've learned aren't particularly, you know, (laughs) insightful, to be honest. Working very hard, you know, I think a lot of people expect that this four-hour work week dream is actually achievable. And and it may be for some people, but only after a huge amount of, of hard work. And I think the other biggest lesson is just to really work on relationships, relationships with my clients, but also my customers, my visitors, wherever you interact with people. Just remember, it's a very small world and everybody knows everybody. So just really try your best as a customer and as a client to kind of treat people with respect and and, and I think it comes back to you in bucketfuls if you behave that way. I totally believe that too. And I think sometimes in my experience, you know, the, the great leaders and, and mentors that I've had, they almost treat everyone with the same amount of respect. I totally agree. I think, you know, we often get a little bit caught up in the celebrity of, of famous people, especially in our space, in the online space. You know, there's some big gurus that we're all supposed to admire. But I have learned the most in my business, not from the gurus, but from my customers and from my peers. So, you know, I think that's I think that's a great point. So did you, I'm assuming you worked for other people before you went out on your own. I did, but I wasn't a good employee. Oh. No, I don't like doing what I'm t- I don't like doing what I'm told, which I like to sort of, you know, I don't know. So I I did. I had lots of jobs. I worked in big advertising agencies like Ogilvy and I worked in the UK and I worked as a subcontractor, uh, as a contractor, sorry, in lots of digital agencies. And I got to the point where I was, you know, the next step would have been to be a general manager and have a huge team under me. Maybe that corner office. Yeah, I would have got the corner office and I'd have been sobbing in it because I was miserable. I really didn't enjoy the whole corporate lifestyle, never really fitted in. So it was a huge relief for me when I was able to escape and start doing my own thing. So when when did you actually go out on your own as a copywriter? And was there any particular point where you just went, this is the day that I become a freelancer? I'd love to say there was. I'd love to say I had an epiphany. But the truth is I got pregnant. Um, and it was a surprise pregnancy because we'd actually been told we weren't able to have children. So I was, you know... I was in a position where I was contracting. I couldn't, I would, there was no maternity leave, obviously. So I just literally had to give up the job. And otherwise I would have, you know, advertising is a hard life. It's long hours and, and lots expected of you when you have pitches on. And so I just gave it up and, and, and I was five months pregnant and I started my own business. Right. And um, how long have you been doing your own gig now? I think I'm in my ninth year. I measure it by how old my son is. So my son is coming up to eight. So I'm up to about eight and a half years, I think. Well done. So what are some of the big mistakes, if we think about small business owners, because a lot of people are small business owners, especially in the Australian landscape, what are some of the big mistakes that the small business owners make when it comes to, say, SEO? 
I think the biggest one I would say is thinking they can just throw money at it to resolve the problem or that they can put their entire trust into some third party supplier. So I have a, a course that I run and out of the, you know, 250 or so people who've done it, most of the people come to me saying, you know, either they've done nothing on SEO or they paid some company a huge amount of money to do their SEO. They never fully understood what they were doing um, and what they were paying for. They felt intimidated about asking questions and they never got the results that they wanted. So I I think that the biggest mistake I would say is putting your trust in others and not educating yourself just a little bit so that you can call people's bluff and, and, and make an informed decision. I had a, somebody on my course who'd spent 24 grand on SEO. And when we actually looked at what had been done, very little had been done. You know, there was no links, pages weren't optimized, there were technical issues, $24,000 without really understanding what you're paying for. I think that's the biggest mistake. That's great to know because I think sometimes we we are very busy in our business and part of us is told outsource and, you know, make that problem go away. But it sounds like you do need to ask some questions before you uh, hand over your hard-earned money. You do. And I mean, you know, there's lots of stats thrown around, but there's a stat that says 80% of all purchase decisions start with a Google search. So why would you give what's possibly the biggest driver of traffic and revenue to your site to someone else without really understanding who they are, what they do, and if they can do what they say they can do? Absolutely. So thinking about content now, I mean, how valuable is video at the moment with SEO? Because it seems like copy is great, but a lot of my clients, you know, big businesses and small businesses now have to present in video format. How is that going to work for SEO? Well, I think it's, it's, it works for so, in so many different ways. If you take the approach that SEO is just part of your general marketing, which it is, well, then videos are grateful on, great, grateful are great on so many levels. So the second biggest search engine in the world is YouTube. So obviously what you're doing is generating content that can rank in the second biggest search engine. But now with the blended results, you'll often find if you type in a particular keyword term, videos are pulled through into the first page of the search engine results as well. So you've got double whammy. You can also obviously share videos into Facebook and snippets on Instagram and Twitter. So it gives you a lot of repurposing opportunities. From an SEO point of view, you know, it creates stickiness on sites. And generally, the longer people hang around on sites, the more likely they are to do the thing, to do the thing you want them to do, whether it's be to sign up to your newsletter or buy a product. But more than that, there's more. I love video. You can obviously get transcripts of your videos and they will likely be keyword rich without you even having to think about optimization. So you can use them on your site as, as blog posts. Um, and finally, I think one of the main things about video is obviously the awareness it creates of you, the person behind the brand. You know, people buy from people, not from brands. So all those reasons, I think video is just awesome. I'm all about the video at the moment. Excellent. So because obviously you do script writing as well, so you must get, uh, do you find there's been an increase in demand for that in recent times? Um, I, I have, but I think I think that the true joy of video is is the unscripted. So when people just kind of go for it. So, you know, larger companies who have budget can afford to get everything scripted. But as you know, in, in your um, career as well, like often the scripted responses sounds a bit stilted and the natural comes across a lot better. So I'm lucky yeah, I do get a fair few script writing jobs. But I think, to be honest, you don't need to pay a script writer. You can often just wing it and create something pretty amazing if you're a small business owner. 
Excellent. I think those barriers to entry have definitely lowered now with so many tools and, and things that allow you to, I guess, create content no matter what the format. Thinking a little bit about Google, you did mention, was it Humming, Hummingbird? I've never actually heard of that. See, I, don't, I haven't asked the right questions for this. <laughs> Does Google have some magic algorithm that we can all get into? Because obviously everyone likes the idea of being ranked number one on the first page of their search, whether they're searching blue widgets or copywriting or holidays with kids, whatever it might be. How do you keep ahead of what the algorithm is doing? Well, I think it's important to understand how search engines work. So they, they have a crawler, they have an index, and they have an algorithm. So they have a little bot that crawls out through your site that gathers information, and then that's put through the algorithm, and the algorithm then generates the search engine results page. And every time you type something in, that whole process happens in, you know, less than a gazillionth of a second. But the algorithm itself is, you know, it's a big bit of code. It's a big it's a big sum, basically. And it's, we believe, we don't know, that it's made up of around 200 different factors. And Google updates it regularly to improve it, generally to weed out the bad people, not to punish the good. So, you know, we've had updates where it looked at people who are building dodgy links from Russian porn sites. And we've had algorithms that, you know, penalize people who are writing really thin content and spinning it across sites. Um, but generally, the algorithm is pretty steady. It wants you to create content that loads quickly, that works on all devices, that's relevant, interesting, engaging, and that answers customers' queries. It sounds pretty obvious, but the truth is there is no magic solution. And anybody who tells you that there is, is probably a little bit dodgy. And the other thing to think about there in terms of ranking is, yes, we all want to be on the first page in the first three results, but we also have to think about, is that ranking actually going to generate conversions? I could get you to the top of the rankings for lots of different phrases, but no one would buy off the back of those phrases. So that's often what SEO companies will sort of sneak in. They'll say, yes, we can get you to the number one spot, but it's for a keyword that doesn't convert because some keywords convert better than others. Excellent. So in terms of big business, they seem to have obviously more budget to spend. How do they do SEO differently or, or don't they? I don't think they do it differently. I think they just do more of it. So, you know, for example, my husband is a small business owner. He's not interested in marketing at all. He wants to just run his business. He just doesn't have the time to write a blog post every week or to be on Facebook posting several times a day or to be building relationships with people that generate links or to be writing press releases or, you know, it literally is the, the more hours and more time you can spend on SEO, of course, the better results you're going to get. They're not doing anything differently. They just have uh, more people. And I think when you get to the very cutting edge level of SEO, so maybe you're a big bank like Commonwealth Bank here in Australia competing with you know NAB Bank. Yes, there are some very advanced SEO techniques uh, that they will be employing to outdo each other. But you know, in the small business world, we just don't need that level of SEO. It'd be great if we could have it and we could afford an advanced SEO person to do that for us. But most of us don't have the budget and we don't need it. Most of the people who come on my courses, it's the basics they haven't done. It's not that they're not ticking off some magical, weird, advanced thing. They haven't even ticked off the basics. So that's where we should concentrate our efforts. Absolutely. So changing tack a little bit, your book, Confessions of a Misfit Entrepreneur, fantastic title, by the way. Thank what you. What teach business people who maybe face some challenges through just through listening to your own stories? What, what, what was the purpose for you in the book? 
Well, I think my purpose initially was just to write a book because I'm a very big fan of books. But I think I'm somebody who doesn't put on a facade on social media or with my business. So when I have my highs, I celebrate them. But when I have my lows, I celebrate those as well. And I, you know, I'm honest about what I've done. So, you know, I have podcasts and I have uh, membership programs and e-courses. And I'm very transparent in here's my e-course. This is how much money I made. This is how much money I spent. Um, and these are the problems I had along the way. And here's the challenges and how I got over them. Um, and I think by being transparent, it helps other people who have maybe, you know, maybe got an e-course and they're thinking, well, I've only got three people on it. Look at, look at this person. They're doing amazingly well to know the truth behind what I did to achieve the success that I had or not, you know, because not everything I do works. Lots of things are horrible failures. I think it's just reassuring. It's like it takes away the pressure. There's an awful lot of pressure on us as business people to be good at everything. And we can't possibly be good at everything. And, you know, a lot of people saying that they're earning these huge figures, but we don't know if it's true. And they're only working two hours a week. You have that sort of, I guess, that comparison thing where you're thinking, oh, my gosh, they're turning over half a million dollars a year working, like you say, four hours a day and, you know, selling programs in their sleep and billions of people are signing up. But like you say, how do you know that that's true? You don't know that it's true. And I think the the big, some of the big names, I mean, it's clearly true because, you know, you look at their general other stats and how many people are following them. I think it's the middle ground where it's people who are selling a program to make you successful following their program that made them successful. So obviously they have to say it was successful, otherwise you wouldn't buy it. It's that one that I find a real struggle. You know, use this sales funnel program, you will make this much. Well, how do I know that you really did make this much? I, and I'm not saying that everyone's lying through their teeth, but you know, when you look behind those figures, I've spoken to a lot of big entrepreneurs because I speak at events and you look behind the figures and yes, they are turning over seven figures, but they are spending, you know, 600,000 of those seven figures to make the 400,000. That's right. And I think that's what's missing. And I think some people, you know, how they fund one business through another and um, like you say, the speaking gigs and so forth, it's, um, those figures can be misleading. And I have heard something similar about those, you know, rich lists, which we yes. love in this country, ranking people of how much they're worth. I mean, a lot of it is, yeah, they're worth that on paper today, but what are their debts and what are yeah. they and exactly. And you just don't know what's also behind that. You know, do they have, did they get money from their mum and dad? Do they have a rich partner that's supporting them? You know, what pressures are on them? Do they have children? Do they have, you know, you just, you just don't know. So the reason I wrote the book was to kind of say, show behind the scenes of what I've done. And I'm not, you know, turning over seven figures every year. I turn over much less than that, but I have a very comfortable life. I only work, you know, 30 or so hours a week max, and I can pick my son up from school every day and not work weekends. And I, you know, and I think that's what most people want to be. We don't all want to be millionaires. We just want to have a nice life and earn a decent amount of money, I think. Absolutely. So why do you call yourself a misfit entrepreneur? I think because I've never done any of the things you're supposed to do. So I don't have a business plan. I refuse to have a team, even though I could make a lot more money if I did employ people. I just don't want to be responsible for other people. I don't really want to be responsible for myself, let alone anybody else. Um, you know, part of it. <laughs> exactly. I'm a bit scruffy. I'm not particularly glamorous. I don't wear suits. I work in my pajamas. So, you know, I think, again, when I see entrepreneurs online, you know, they're all doing TED Talks in shiny suits, looking glamorous. And, 
you know, talking about the seven steps to whatever. And I've never done any of those things and I've still been successful. So again, the other message is kind of like, you don't have to follow someone else's path. You can get a bit of inspiration, but generally your own path is usually the best one to tread. Oh, I totally agree with that. I'm always a big believer we don't get to where we are without some sort of help of some sort. You might not have a formal mentor or paid for coaching, but are there inspirational figures in your life that kind of drive you? Yeah, so I've never paid for a coach. I have had um, a couple of chats with the lovely Robert Garish from, from Flying Solo, who's very wise. But I guess, you know, the biggest inspiration and place I draw ideas from are my, my parents. My dad's had his own business. My mum has worked in lots of different jobs. And, you know, they are, they've got a great sort of moral compass. And, and, you know, I think they always steer me in the right direction. So, yeah, again, probably quite a prosaic answer, but I find my mum and dad pretty inspiring. And just touching on the uh, copywriting event which you ran this year, why? Why would you do an event? They sound very stressful to me. I used to work in events. H- how did you really pull that together? Well, I'm a classic, again, misfit entrepreneur for saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing and telling everybody about it. And then I'm like, oh, my God, I have to do the thing. So I have a membership community for copywriters, which has about 120 or so copywriters in it. And, you know, they're always keen to meet in real life. So we would do little meetups at pubs and things like that. But I just wanted to do one annual event where we could all come together and celebrate being copywriters and maybe learn. So I took it on myself to do it. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but it was a huge amount of fun. It was lovely to go to make the decisions because often I speak at events and I obviously don't have any control over how those events are run. So I was able to really put my own stamp on it. It was a huge success. I mean, it sold out in, in, in four weeks, which is... And which how many tickets did you have available? Uh, it was 100. It was a small event, so only 100. But I think it will always be a small event because, again, I'm not about playing playing big. I like to play small. But rather have 100 people there who enjoyed each other and felt quite cosy than 600 and it felt just a bit, you know, huge and anonymous. So, you know, first event, 100 people, happy, great speakers. It was great. I'm doing it again next year. Might be a bit bigger, might be a bit better organized. (laughs) Although people said it was well organized. I think they just didn't realize how much effort goes in behind the scenes to make it look so seamless. It's it's hard to pull off, I think. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you asked why I did it. I did it because I wanted to and because I I enjoyed it hugely. And I think that's an underestimated part of business as well. Like, no, did it make me any money? No, I lost a little bit this year. I'll probably make a bit of money next year. But I enjoyed it so much. And I think, you know, other parts of my business, maybe I don't enjoy quite so much. So it was my reward and something. It was a pleasure project. We all have pleasure projects and there's nothing wrong with that, I think. Absolutely. Well, we're just going to wrap up. So if you could close off by sharing with the listeners, you know, who might be out there going, okay, what do I need to do? What are maybe one or two or three top tips to better master the politics of SEO? How would you like to leave that conversation? I think the biggest tip I would have is try to educate yourself. Try to find a few sources of truth that are consistent and have a strong voice in the SEO world and only listen to them. So stop getting advice from random people on Facebook or your hairdresser or, you know, and just really find some people that you can trust and rely on and educate yourself a little bit. Be very careful about how you choose people to help you with your SEO if you do want to outsource it. And don't be intimidated by SEO. You know, believe me, there is no magic juju. There is no big secret. It's just a case of chipping away at stuff that 
Google freely tells us, you know, it has its guidelines. It tells us what it wants to do. So yeah, that would be it. Educate yourself, be careful who you trust and, you know, don't be frightened. It's not as scary as you think. And you can always employ a great copywriter if you need that extra magic. You can. (laughs) Well, thank you, Kate, for your time. Um, We have some details on our show notes of how to contact Kate Toon. If you'd like to follow her on social media or reach out to her through her website or her book, you've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.